I think we're gonna do something that we've never done before. All right, welcome everybody uh, to the latest Dashing It Out episode with Leo. Uh, he's a member of the Codex team and also uh, a very prolific PhD researcher. Uh, he's worked with the EF in the past on uh, various different uh, grants, and uh, yeah, he's here with us to talk about uh, data availability sampling. Uh, I'll hand it to, off to you, Leo. <laughs> Hi, thank you for the introduction. Nice, nice to be here. Deal. So, I mean, the top, you know, we're talking about data availability sampling. The obvious question is, what is sampling? And then the follow-up immediately to that is, when do we need it? Right. <clears throat> so, um, in the context of um, uh, decentralized system, which is I think what we are talking here, in the context of, uh, you know, um, Codex and Web3 and peer-to-peer -peer networks, uh, and so on and so forth. We need um, we need to be uh, aware that not all the players in the network are um, you know uh, first uh, good players, and also uh, there are other you know uh, players in the in the in the system that even if they had good intentions, they might not um, achieve uh, or with what the objective that they are supposed to achieve or. Uh, provide the performance that they're expected to, to provide uh, to the network. So <clears throat> because of that, um, it's, it's, it's necessary to, um, to guarantee that, um, uh, you know, a certain number of um, items or rules, depending on what is that you are designing. And, um, and for that, sometimes you will need something. For example, if you are developing a decentralized storage system, and the nodes that are going to store the data uh, in this uh, centralized system are just random nodes that can join at any moment at any time. Um, you need to make sure that they are behaving properly and that um, they actually are storing the data that they are supposed to store. And the best way to do that is sampling. So that means that you're going to go to ask them um, what um, the data that uh, they are supposed to have. And there are many ways of, to, of doing that, uh, but I'm not going to get there yet. Um, but yeah, basically you need to make sure that um, uh, the data that they are supposed to store, uh, they have it and, uh, and that everything is fine. And so uh, there will be some nodes that are, uh, you know, not malicious, but they're for X reason, they go offline from time to time, either because of, you know, network conditions, bad internet, uh, hardware failures, uh, or many other attacks. Um, and so um, perhaps at that moment, they will not be uh, available for uh, relaying the data they are supposed to have. Or, and there are other nodes that are just, you know, really malicious and they are just trying to attack the system. So uh, those are the things that you have to take into account and that's why you need sampling. Nice. So... If I were like a student in your classroom, my follow-up is just, a, I'm a seek for understanding. You you do the, the the data sampling to make sure that the data is is there, right? So that's, that's it. If, if I could like, you know, distill it down, we've got to take samples of different nodes and what data they have to see if we have the complete set of data we need. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So for example, you take a, a data set and you want to distribute it among a group of people, 
um, and then um, so you you take your let's imagine it's, it's a book right and it has 20 chapters and you're going to divide it into uh, 20 people uh, so what you do is you, you just give a chapter for each person and then from time to time you uh, ask a certain person uh, can you give me you know a proof that you still have the chapter that you are supposed to have right and then um, that proof uh, you know can be uh, many ways one one of the ways is to you know show me the chapter so i just show it to you like hey here it is and that's 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 a way to do it um now there are other ways uh, for example you could imagine instead of you know sending you the whole data the whole chapter through the internet because maybe it's too heavy uh you can do maybe just a hash of it a hash is you know like a cryptographic signature and and then uh you send me the hash and i know that that's the hash of that chapter and so i say okay yeah he still has the hash right and i assume that um, um that everything goes well and and so uh that means you still have the data now a hash is not really a good proof um because uh, you could take the chapter calculate the hash uh, and then discard the chapter right and then you just store the hash uh, and so a hash per se is not a really good proof but there are many other type of proofs and 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 sampling is just a way of you know um analyzing you know statistically uh how many people should i check uh, in a system where with a certain number of assumptions and to make sure that i have the data that i will recover the data that i'm supposed to have okay i'm tracking I could keep rattling off questions left and right, Jesse, like a machine gun. But if you want to <laughs> hop in, you gotta let you gotta let me know. So, so to solve the the sampling issue of like sampling the entire chapter of the book that you're referencing, mm. uh, you mentioned sampling uh, hashes or sampling like a, some sort of cryptographic proof that they have the a fraction of the chapter, maybe. Right. So can you go a little bit into how that chapter is specifically turned into maybe smaller subchapters or right. uh, like using some sort of maybe encoding scheme? Right. So um so sampling is is you know is one part of uh, of asking you know the the set of players in in your network whether they still have um the data that they are supposed to have or not. But then, uh, you know, what happens when um, one of them don't? Like, you know, one of them just disappear, and it turns out that now that you cannot read the book uh, because there is a chapter missing, right? Um, so what what we do, uh, in, you know, in, in computer science, and uh, is to use um, different techniques uh, for enhancing the data or like augmenting the data, um, so that even if a few players, a few members of this group or, or a few nodes in the network uh, disappear, you still can't recover the data, right? The most simple way to do that is just replicating the data, like right? you just double the, the number of, I mean, you duplicate each chapter and then you give one chapter to each person. But now you, if you have 20 chapters, you don't need 20 people, you need 40 people because you need, you know, um, you will not give two times um the same chapter to that person because then if that person disappeared then you still lose the chapter so you need more people okay 
And then if you want to tolerate multiple people missing, um, then you will have to replicate more times. Uh, so you can replicate it three times, four times, five times. Now, this is extremely simple, fast, and not complex. So it's, it's easy to implement. Uh, the problem is that it's very you know, space hungry. It, take, it takes a lot of space, right? It requires a lot of storage. And if you really want to tolerate uh, multiple um, failures or multiple missing chapters, um, then um, you will you would require a lot of storage and a, a lot of people helping you in this protocol. So instead of that, uh, there is another uh, system that we use um, that is called erasure coding. It's just a fancy term uh, to you know to refer to to polynomials and you know mathematical equation equations and uh, systems of you know multiple equations that help us um, you know solve us uh, when some Thing is not known in this in this system, but I think there will be another uh, podcast in the future, maybe that I'll explain more in detail how erasure codes goes, uh, or um, and perhaps we can leave those details for later. But it's basically just imagine that you have a machine, right, uh, in which you you give a data as input, and then on the other side you get the data plus some extra data, right, and and what happens is that and with this extra data that you get, um, you can recover a certain number of pieces in the original data, right? And this is this is used everywhere today. Like, like if you want to communicate with satellites, you need that, right? Because, um, you know, when you are communicating with satellites, you have to pass through the atmosphere. And in the atmosphere, there is a lot of, you know, perturb perturbations and, and, and noise. And so you might lose small parts of the message that you are sending. So if you just send a message, you will never get, mm. you will never be able to communicate with satellites, which is annoying because, you know, then we don't have GPS and then we don't know where we are going with driving. And then that's why we, we, we need to improve this message with this some kind of encoded data so that even if some parts of the message are missing, we are able to reconstruct them with this mathematical magical box that allow us to encode and decode the messages, right? And so, that's what we do. We take this um, data, we encode it, we produce some extra data, and then we um, divide all this in, in, in little boxes or blocks. And then we give to each node in the network a different, a different block. So imagine uh, you have this uh, same uh, chapter, uh, sorry, same book with 20 chapters. You divide it into uh, 20 chapters you get all the chapters to this magical mathematical machine and then you get 10 extra chapters that don't look like anything you know they, they are just not readable but it doesn't matter the thing is that if you lose one of those chapters you will be able to reconstruct it based on the encoded data that you got and so now you don't need 20 people but you need 30 uh, because you have 20 original plus 10 encoded chapters and so you you know you disperse these chapters into 30 people but now you can tolerate any 10 chapters missing in the entire set, okay? Uh, and you only need 10 more people. If you wanted to do the same with replication, you would basically need to multiply the number of chapters by 10. So 20 times 10, that means 200. You will need 200 people to do that. In this case, we just need 30. It's much more efficient in terms of space. And, and, and then um, now you are 
you have a, a system that is much more reliable in that is much, much harder to lose data. And then you apply sampling. <laughs> um, now you need to ask people uh, from time to time, hey, you still have your chapter. Uh, and then, but the question here is, do you need to really question everyone or not? Or, or is it sufficient to question only a few members of the group, whether they have their data or not? And the answer is, we don't need to, um, to ask everyone. And that's what we call sublinear sampling. It's like, if you apply some uh, statistical computations, you can uh, be sure that, uh, or you can have a very high probability that you will still be able to recover that data if you got a sufficient number of uh, positive answers when you are doing when you are doing sampling. Um, I don't know if this does this make sense. No, it actually does. I'm like uh, I'm a little bit like kind of fascinated a little bit because I've asked. And I feel like you've explained it in a way that I finally can understand. So let me try to run it back. So essentially what erasure coding does is it, it just provides some like redundancy in the message. So like, okay, I'm sending a recipe, but you know, I want to make sure everyone who downloads this recipe is going to get all the ingredients. So some of these ingredients I'm going to encode and just attach it to the message. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, so I guess that encoded extra bit, you're saying you can, you can adjust how much or how little is encoded to increase right. or decrease the storage needs of the message. But if you, do, so, so, you know, just, I like to understand. So if I bring it down to only a small amount of it is encoded, then I mm -hmm. need more participants because I need to ensure that the redundancy is there. But if a large amount is encoded, then I can have less participants in the network. Right. So, so it depends what type of redundancy scheme you are using. So if you are using encoding, you just need a small number of participants. Okay. If you are using replication, which means you duplicate or triplicate the data without any mathematical encoding, then you will need a large number of, um, of, of participants. Mm. Okay. But yeah, exactly what you said is that um, you can tune exactly when, you know, how much you want to produce as encoded data. Uh, in order to calculate how much, you know, to, to know how much space extra you will need. And you can play with this parameter. So that's that's very convenient. Nice. You realize, like, when I'm driving my kid around and he asks me how GPS works now, now I, <laughs> now I get to sound like that, <laughs> that, that dad. Like, I know how all of this works, child. Uh, so you raise your coding. No. Um, I hope he doesn't get bored. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Um, I did have a question. It was probably a little while back. Um, I know there's different ways to sample. So mm -hmm. are there different ways to sample data? Right. So this, this goes into, um, um, I mean, one of the questions is uh, how much you need to sample and how often, uh, you do this. And, um, for example, in the case of, um, of a storage system, um, if you apply randomness, which is the way, the best way to do it, if you randomly decide who you're going to sample, then with just a very few number of samples, you already know, um, you already have a very high degree of, uh, uh, you know, assurance that the data is there if you got, uh, enough positive answers. So for example, um, if, 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 if you, you know, you are a teacher in a, in a, in a school and, um, you have a, a class of 
a hundred kids, right? And so um, you imagine you say, okay, for for tomorrow, I'm, so you you give a homework for tomorrow, right? And so you say, okay, for the first half of the list, um, uh, I, I want to check the the homework of the first half of the of the list, and then uh, next week I'm going to check the homeworks of the second half of the list, right? Um, so what happens is that uh, the next day, most likely, uh, the first 50 kids in the class did their homework and the last 50 kids in the class didn't do the homework because, you know, why would they do it if they were told that they will not check it? Uh, and then for the next week, uh, the opposite will happen, right? So you, um, you will have the first 50 they didn't do the homework and the second 50 they did their homework, right? Now, if you tell them, uh, instead that you're going to, instead of saying, I'm going to pick the first 50 and then the second 50, if you say, I'm going to pick, I'm going to pick 50 kids randomly, then, you know, they cannot play with this anymore because then they don't know if you're going to be selected or not. So most likely you will have a large number of kids that actually do the homework because they were afraid that, you know, they get picked. And then maybe a few ones will say like, ah, I'm just going to play my chances, you know, and, and then maybe some of them will not, right? Um, but then, okay, let's imagine, uh, so you, you pick a number of, uh, a number of kids and it turns out that, you know, the first week, um, every time you ask, like, um, 50% of them did the homework and 50% of them, uh, did not do the homework. So you know that, you know, the average, uh, you know, homework delivery is 50%. The next month, um, that decreases to, let's say 25%, um, and, and, and let's imagine that that's, that gets improving. Um, if you ask a certain number of times, let's say uh, 30 homeworks, and every time you get um, all 30 homeworks done, then you know that the probability uh, that there is 99.9999999 probability that everybody is doing the homeworks, right? Because if you pick, um, you know, 30 random times, uh, random homeworks, and nobody, um, and all of them were correct, and all of them did the homework, then um, just basically you know that, uh, that, that yeah, that we have a 99.99% probability that everybody is doing the homework. Um, it's, it's like, it's like, uh, it's like throwing a, it's like doing a, a, a throwing a coin, you know, you have 50% health, um, uh, 50% face, uh, so, um, if it's, it's really hard that you, you throw the coin 30 times and you always get the correct answer, right? So the only way that happens is because, uh, you know, that the system, uh, is, 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 is producing these results. And, and so that's what we do. And, uh, with sublinear sampling, we try to, uh, minimize the number of questions that we have to ask and, um, and, and I still have a very, very high probability that the question and the answer that we are getting is, is, is positive, which means that, uh, that everybody in the network is actually storing the data that they have to store. But then, yeah, as you say, there are other also other types of um, sampling, like for example, um, you know, is what type of answer do you want to get uh, for when you are requesting if the nodes have the data? Uh, one of the ways is saying like, please send me the entire data and then I verify it. Another way is you send me a proof that you have the data. And that, um, in this case, we're talking about a cryptographic proof. Now, the problem is if you want to store these proofs 
uh, on a dashboard or the internet for everybody to see that to check that the the, the nodes are still storing the data then you can not really ask them to send you the entire data set as a proof that they still have it right in particular if we are talking about the centralized system and web3 most of the times you want to store the proofs in a, into a blockchain and storing data in a blockchain is extremely expensive at least today and so because of that you cannot say uh, well i'm going to store my proofs uh, in the blockchain because that would be just you know prohibitively expensive um, and then what you need to do is to is a way to create crypto cryptographic proofs that are small enough and that you can post that in, in the blockchain and then everybody can see that oh yeah my data is still there because two hours ago the protocol asked this node and and all of the 20 chapters that i stored are there so my book is still safe right and and that's that's how we do it however we have to we have to ask these kind of questions. So these samplings is not done just once because that's not enough. You need to do it at a certain frequency, right? You need to say, okay, I'm going to check, I don't know, two times per day or four times per day uh, if um, uh, to check if my data is there. And I assume that this is, you know, um, uh, that this is good enough for me. So every six hours I ask uh, and, and I check. But then if you have to do this, check for the entire system and you have a lot of data uh, then you are talking about storing a very very large number of proofs and that's where things become complicated when you have to store a very very large number of proofs then you have to use other kind of uh, techniques in order to see if you can compress those proofs all together into a small one that still includes all of the others and, 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 and you can use them. And, and there are techniques to do that. Uh, in particular, we call them succinct non-interactive arguments of knowledge, SNARKs for short. And um, it's just a mathematical tool that exists today to compress proofs into very, very you know, packed things that really packed a lot of proofs together into one small one. And, and that's what we use today. Uh, for sampling in at least in codex, but that's what we are planning to use. Yeah. So one one of the questions I have, uh, you talked about the recursive compression scheme that you use, um, but one of the questions I have more is how do you determine the frequency of repair that's necessary to maintain, you know, I guess uh, a certain number of nines for the for the storage. Right. Right. So, um, yeah, good point. So one, once you are, so we, we talk about, you know, erasure coding and enhancing or increasing the data. Then we talk about sampling. Now we talk about compressing those proofs into a small one. Now what happens, sorry, what happens if, um, you have to, um, act when a data, you know, is simply gone, you know, so there is a node that, you know, for some reason burn out and, 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 they didn't provide this, the verification, the proof that they had to provide. And uh, you know that this node is gone. You ask several times in a row and there is no answer. So the data is gone. In this moment, you have to repair the data. And for that, you use um, the same encoding technique that you use to augment the data. So this same algorithm, you use it but backwards in order to regenerate the, the original data using the encoded data. Now, 
when you do this, um, you can do it all, every time that you see something missing, um, you can do it, right? But uh, remember that uh, in our example, we say, okay, I take my 20 chapters and then I create 10 more that are encoded data. And so now if I lose one chapter, I still have nine others, which means I still can lose another nine chapters and I will be still uh, be able to recover my original data, right? So um, you can play with this, uh, with these thresholds. You can say, okay, instead of repairing all the time, because, you know, repairing is not, it's not free. Uh, it, it requires you would incur a, a lot of proofs and it would, it would be, it would, you would overwhelm wherever you're storing the proofs in terms right. of, uh, yeah. So that, that, that has a, a certain cost. And so, um, instead of doing that, I can say, I can set a threshold it's saying, okay, maybe from this point, I will start reconstructing the missing data. And one of the interesting properties of this algorithm is that when you reconstruct, uh, when you do the decoding, um, it doesn't matter how many, uh, data or how many chapters in the book are missing, because it will always regenerate the whole 20 original books, right? So if you had one chapter missing, or you had five chapter missings for the same calculation, you will get all of them. As far as you did, there's a caveat than... though. There's a caveat there, right? In terms of like adversarial erasure, uh, yeah. and, and uh, yeah, and excluding just enough data so that repair is not possible. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So you have to be careful with, with that. And so you, you have to make sure you don't get too close to the, to the danger zone and, and that you still have a certain buffer and, uh, and uh, some protection there. So, um, you know, we, we play with, you know, tuning these systems so that, um, you know, on one side, we don't incur too much overhead by repairing everything that is perhaps not necessary all the time. But also, we don't go to the other extreme where uh, maybe we are uh, getting too close to actually lose data. And that is catastrophic because this is definitely the case that we want to avoid. Mm. So how does this um, how does this sampling kind of differ from some of the other um, data data availability uh, samples sampling that exists? Um, I know Ethereum is doing some like how's Codex is different and better. Right. So um, yes. So we are working with the Ethereum Foundation on a, on a project on a research project together. And uh, basically, we are trying to, uh, to help them, uh, you know, uh, model um, the data availability sampling strategy for uh, the next iteration of Ethereum. Uh, and the reason why it was a good project for Codex to participate on is because um, many of the strategies that we are using inside Codex are actually used um, in or are planned to be used in, uh, in Ethereum, right? For example, I was talking about the ratio coding. They are planning to use the ratio coding. We are talking about sampling. They are using to use sampling. We are talking about data repair. They are using to, and, and this is all normal. This is not a coincidence uh, because the prob the probability the problematic is the same. In that, um, what we want is to protect the data somehow, and to do this in a system that is decentralized, a peer to peer network, and that uh, nodes go down from time to time. And other nodes are not nice and, and, and play bad. And so um, 
there is just a limited number of mathematical tools that can help us and we all try to use those tools uh, and the best ones um, for, for, for the task. So that's why this, you know, uh, this collaboration makes sense because we are using the same tools. Um, now, there are significant differences. Um, for example, in the context of Ethereum, uh, what we are working on is data availability. We want to make sure that the block um, that is going to be produced is available. Uh, but uh, we don't need to guarantee that the block is available forever. We just want to make sure that the block at some point in time became available to the, to the network, and that's it. Uh, in the context of Codex, uh, the story is different because in Codex, what we do uh, is to guarantee data durability, which means uh, you sign a contract um, you know, with, a, with a storage provider and you say, I want you to store this data for the next three years or, or whatever. And we need to make sure that the data is available for those next three years. So that means that, and we go back to the frequency of sampling that we were talking before, uh, in the context of Codex, we need to keep testing that the data is available, you know, every X amount of time. And that means that the frequency of sampling is completely different between uh, Ethereum and Codex. In Codex, we have to think in long term, in Ethereum, we don't. So that's that's yeah, already Ethereum. They dump the data in two weeks, like more exactly. Yeah, yeah. two weeks or three weeks or whatever is the the, the timeline uh, is a different uh, is a different uh, scope, you know, and 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 that is a significant difference. Um, and that leads to another another point is that um, uh, in Ethereum you can actually do sampling on your own, uh, and and you say okay, I'm going to check whether this. Uh, the piece of this block is available and I, and I participate in sampling. And when I find that something is not available, I just raise this, this alarm to the network and I say, hey, I, you know, I, I didn't find this piece of data. Or I try to repair it if, if I want. You know, there are different actions you can take. Um, but that's, um, you know, you don't need to store these proofs into a blockchain. Uh, or, or at least not in the same way that you need to do it in Codex. And, and that leads to, uh, to a difference in how much data that you need to store uh, inside the blockchain um, and, and regarding the proofs uh, of the system. And also because in Codex we are looking at long-term and data durability, then we really need to, need to make sure that the, the amount of space that we are using for proof storing is, is sufficiently small. Then we have to go and look into SNARKs, and, and, you know, ways to compress these proofs uh, into a very, very small space, which is what I was planning before. And Ethereum, we don't necessarily need um, all that. Um, there are parts of it that we need, um, but in a different way. There is data, as I say, there is no data durability in Ethereum. So, um, uh, you know, you don't have for a, a specific set of data. You don't need to provide proofs for three years. You need to provide proof for a very short time. And another thing uh, that um, uh, that I think is uh, is different is that um, you know the way you encode the data is, is is you know it can be you know there are many ways to do it, um, and then that is really goes into how you want to design your protocol, and you know there are many many flavors. Uh, for example, in Ethereum, we are using um, two dimensional 
uh, read Solomon encoding. Uh, Two-dimensional means that you take your data set, um, you divide it into small blocks, and then you put those blocks into a little square, two-dimensional square. And then uh, you take every line and you uh, augment it with a, a ratio coding. So you produce a longer line for every line. And then you do the same for every column. And then you just do the same um, for the extra columns and the extra lines. And so what happens is that you end up with a larger uh, square uh, that is kind of protected two-dimensionally. It's just a it's just a pattern to protect um, the data. Um, in the case of con of codex, we are not doing exactly that. Um, we are also using resolving encoding, uh, but we are using um, uh, somehow uh, I think in a in a it's a one-dimensional way of uh, resolving encoding. We also have a two-dimensional structure, but it's not exactly the same as um, as in the case of Ethereum. So um, that's different. Um, so something else that we're also using in, uh, that we are planning to use for Ethereum is uh, KCG commitments. Uh, KCG commitments are um, basically just a way uh, to demonstrate that the erase-coded data that you produce, so the encoded data that you produce, is actually correct and um, and is part of, of this line that I'm encoding. Okay. And then I can just send you a piece of that data with the proof, the KCG proof, and then you have a very easy way to verify that the data that I'm sending you is not just garbage, because that could be a possible attack, right? I could say, I'm gonna encode the data, but I'm not really encoding anything, I'm just producing garbage information. And then I just spread this information, and then everybody believes that everything is fine and well. But when you want to reconstruct, you cannot because the data that was dispersed at the very beginning was actually not really useful. Um, and so the KCG commitments uh, help you to guarantee that what you are spreading on the network is actually uh, real encoded data that will allow you to reconstruct in case of failures. Mm. So it's a it sounds like a like a technical like undertaking a huge technical undertaking what about uh, for the end user and like you know maybe businesses if they decide to um, participate in this network how do they do so with protections like how is their privacy protected and the other users privacy protected i guess what i'm saying is if i'm electing to you know use my hard drive to store stuff uh you know how do i know somebody's not putting some bad stuff on my hard drive and how am I protected? Like, I don't want to, like, that's their data, not mine. I know it's stored on my system, but it's not my stuff. You know what I mean? Right. How do you... You're talking about wanting some sort of plausible deniability for uh, data that is illegal? Yeah, like, I, if I go to a storage unit, I got to sign a bunch of papers that say I'm not storing illegal stuff in their storage unit, right? And they that's their protection. Because what if I am? And then the police bust into the storage unit and then they're like, you know what I mean? Like, what are the protections for the, for the end user? Right. Right. So this is, this is of course, a, a very difficult topic and a, a very uh, important one mm -hmm. um, because uh, exactly if you want, uh, if you want to, you know, participate in this network and you want to help the system offering your uh, this that you are not using, you want to, you want to have those protections. One of, one way to protect, um, 
the user uh, would be, for example, to enforce encryption on all data sets. Um, now we are not uh, we are not sure this is the way we will go uh, with Codex. There are some systems that implement that, um, uh, but this will be you know this will be a way to say okay, uh, the data that I receive is encoded, is encrypted, and I I don't have any way to decrypt it. I don't have the keys, so um, I'm just storing this. Um, there is already an extra protection on top of the um, of the other you know encoding system that we are implementing um, in Codex because you know when when somebody uploads a data, a data set you don't even get to know um, what type of file it is because you don't get the file you just get the piece of the file right you just mm -hmm. you just get you just get a, a block of data this block of data is also not a con necessarily a contiguous part of the file is probably a you know it's the composition of many small blocks and pro perhaps many of those blocks are actually encoded blocks not mm. only the originals that and so what happens is that the data that you are getting is is really a scramble of, of of many small blocks after the encoding was produced and you are getting original blocks as well as encoded blocks and all you're getting all this packet together so in a sense the data that you are already receiving is you know very very hard to understand in a possible way and uh, and to make any sense of it uh, but if you want it uh, yeah you could apply encryption on top of it and, and say well you know anyway even if i manage to remake all the the order in between these small blocks and everything i will not be able to decrypt uh, the content because i don't have the keys oh. um, so, yeah. okay sorry i interrupted you but the light bulb went off so it's like <laughs> You know, there's like a five million piece puzzle of like the sky, the hardest puzzle on the planet, right? Like here's a blue, here's a five million piece puzzle of blue, right? Exactly. And then on my computer, you're like, and here's four pieces. Don't know where I got them from. They could be border pieces or they could be in yes. the middle, but here's three of them. Good luck, right? There's really right. no way for me to even know what the data is. So, exactly, and, okay. and remember that one of one million out of those five million pieces are actually not part of the original picture of the sky. It's other it's encoded. Puzzle. It's, it's encoded sky, you know. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. I would I would go to court on those grounds. I would be like, <laughs> you put that piece together. You put that puzzle together, judge. So, and then I right. get sent to jail. But no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> right? Um, no, but it's it's true that it's important to to. to to pay attention to those details because yeah we want to make sure that we are we are doing things right okay all right so light bulb went off i'll pass the rock to you jess yeah so just a recap of the, like all the different things we kind of talked about so it sounds like codex and the work that's being done with uh the ef again like you said uses the same tools from the same toolbox in order to be more efficient with the amount of storage across the network so rather than doing full replicas, like you said originally. You use erasure coding in order to reduce the number of people that need to uh, hold uh, parts of the entire data set. And then you also, on top of that, try to be conscious of bandwidth mm -hmm. uh, for the nodes. So rather than doing uh, very frequent repair, you have some sort of concept of laziness to this repair so that you know you, you were saying that you're playing with the parameters such that the persistence of the file is guaranteed 
and you're not crossing that threshold in terms of not re not requesting proofs often enough that the user actually ends up losing their file. So you want to make sure that they have their file forever or for as long as the contract is, but you're being conscious of the bandwidth right. uh, by by regulating the frequency of the proofs down, the requesting of those proofs. Right. Um, right. And then in terms of the encoding scheme, I think you just covered that um, you're not doing the exact same data structure in terms of the 2D uh, Reed-Solomon coding that is for the DAS, the EF stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Codex has its own data structure. Right. Um, and then you, they're tackling completely different problems, like you mentioned. One is for the Ethereum Foundation. They're just trying to provide a way for validators to have access to data in order to replay or verify uh, a state. Mm -hmm. Okay. A block on the okay. state, yes. Okay. Uh, versus Codex is trying to solve this problem of data durability, which is more persistence and like probabilistic retrievability of, of data. Right. Exactly. And, and and there is also another um, another difference that I, I just remember now and I didn't mention, and is the the size of the data. Um, in in Codex, for example, we you know uh, we want to offer you know users the possibility to upload any data set, whether it's just a, a small file uh, or whether it's just a huge backup of your you know all your pictures or whatever or. or the, movies or you know anything that uh, that is legal of course and that you know but any size of the data in terms of ethereum you always have the same um the same amount of data because what we are trying to protect uh in the case of ethereum is the is a block that is going to be produced and we have very specific uh, sizes for this block it cannot be a huge block of one terabyte that is just uh unthinkable um and it's uh, usually not, uh, you know, one kilobyte. Uh, I mean, that's not the numbers that we are talking about. So here we are, for example, in the current model, which doesn't mean that it's going to be like that at the end. It can change. But we are thinking, you know, uh, something between 32 megabytes that after encoded uh, can be in the order of 120 megabytes. And so now we have a very specific size um, of the, the data that we are planning to protect. Okay. Uh, in the case of codex, it can be, you know, it can be very small or it can be huge. But when it's huge, then that applies a certain burden on top of the system because, um, you know, you, you might have to, to encode this huge amount of data very fast. And, you know, that has a certain number of implications. And, and so, yeah, that's another difference between the two systems. So what are some, uh, I guess... Uh, open-ended points of research or continued work that uh, we'll definitely have you on to discuss for Codex like in the near future. Right. So uh, in the context of Codex, uh, we still have we're still working on the snarks on on what is the best way to implement uh, very uh, succinct small proofs and how to aggregate those proofs uh, in uh, in a very efficient way. We already have uh, a few models that tell us uh, how much space uh, is going to be consumed by those proofs, given a system of a certain, you know, a number of files and, you know, average uh, file size uh, and so on and so forth. So 
we already have some models that allow us to predict, uh, you know, these kind of things, but we still miss uh, a couple of uh, inputs. For example, we are still not sure how fast uh, we can encode um, a proof using uh, snarks. And, and that's something that we need in order to put as an input in our models to say, okay, this is the amount of time that we are gonna that we're gonna spend um, uh, encoding proofs or aggregating proofs in the system. Uh, and you know, the more files you get, the more proofs you get, and the more times you will spend aggregating those. And, and that is important because you know, then if you need many, then you can say, okay, then maybe we need a certain number of aggregators in the system. Aggregators will be a specific role in the system and know that only cares about aggregating proofs. It's not storing any data, it's not promising any storage along to long term, but it's just aggregating um, uh, proofs uh, in, the net, in, in the network. So um, those, those kind of things, we're still not 100% sure that we're still working on those. And that's still part of the you know ongoing research uh, in the in the team in, in the codex team. Awesome. Oh, cool. can we have you back to talk about like use cases? Excuse me. <laughs> can we have you back to talk about use cases? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, sure, of course. Sorry, I didn't. I don't know. I lose some of the connection. All good. All good. <laughs> I thought you were just like no, no, you can't. <laughs>